Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, let's discuss gender-neutral pronouns. Okay. Things your English teacher never told you. Yes. Because usually we refer to people as she, he, him, her. Yeah. And then sometimes when we get plural, we go they, them. Mm-hmm. Gender neutral right there. Yes. But if you're just talking about one person, what should you say when they do not clearly identify with one gender or another? Well, Molly, we have a set of gender neutral pronouns. Instead of saying she or he, you would say Z. And instead of saying her or him, you would say here. So you'd say Z went to here bedroom. Yes. Now, are we just being goofy with the English language for the fun of it? No. No, this is relevant to the story we're about to discuss and our topic at hand because we were inspired to do this podcast by a news story that came out on March 12th, 2010, Sydney Morning Herald, which uh, described the story of a person named Nori who became the first person to receive a legal document that said sex not specified. Instead of having uh, the female or the male box ticked off, instead it said not specified. Yes, Nori uh, basically provided adequate medical documentation to the New South Wales government so that she could request a new certificate from the Registry of Births, Deaths, and Marriages that in the box for gender said sex not specified because Nori identifies herself as neither male nor female. Nori was born as a boy and later was castrated and then went on hormone treatments, but then stopped taking hormone treatments because Z wanted to just live life naturally, I Mm -hmm. guess in an article for written for the scavenger Z says that quote, I haven't taken hormones for about 20 years, preferring my body and my brain to be as they are naturally without being dependent on externally supplied hormones or plastic implants, happy to be androgynous and to be seen as such. And Nori also goes on to say that getting the gender not specified label is actually just logistically easier because if Z identifies as female, but someone mistakes Nori as male, then there are problems and then vice versa. Because if you look at a picture of Nori, it kind of is a toss up Mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, if you would immediately, you know, just from gender cues, say, think, oh, male or female. Right. And like, let's say they're uh, Z's traveling. And, you know, you've got the passport Mm -hmm. and it says one thing, but it looks like another. That's sort of the problem she was saying. Z was saying. And, um, I mean, it's going to be an adjustment to, to fix the pronouns, but what, and Z thinks that more people will want this designation, particularly if they're transsexual, perhaps transitioning from one gender to the other, but also just because of the way women are discriminated against. In culture. Mm-hmm. Now, this is an argument that I have personally a little bit harder time swallowing because I just I don't know if we could ever get to a society where we wouldn't want where some people wouldn't want that specification. But it is interesting to think about going to a bar. And Kristen, I know you've experienced this. You've got your your female driver's license and then you order the very masculine scotch and soda. 
and as I'm smoking a cigar. <laughs> I mean, there are ways in which we are unconsciously and consciously uh, embodying gender norms mm-hmm. that make people hold certain perceptions of us. Yeah, I will say, like, going to the bar example, if I, let's say I'm out with a fella and he wants to buy me a drink, and when I tell him I would like a Jameson on the rocks... <laughs> He's, you know, sometimes it's a little, he doesn't expect that, you know. And if he... He's already bought me a Zima. (laughs) I was going to say, in contrast, if he likes Zima or if he likes an Appletini or something like that... We would say, oh, what a girly man. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Which is going to bring us to our discussion. Not that we're comparing Nori's plight with cocktail ordering on a date, but... It's going to bring us to this discussion of androgyny, our topic for the day. Right, because this all has to do with the social construct that is gender. We're not talking about biological gender, whether you have a penis or a vagina. This is all about the idea of what, in society's eyes, it means to be a male or a female. Right. Now, the definition of androgyny is a blending of what is considered to be a female or a male within a single individual so that they display both stereotypically male traits and the stereotypically female traits. And in, early world, in other words, a girly man who, you know, may be able to hunt a bear, that seems stereotypically masculine, but also enjoy a nice, nice apple teeny at the end of the day. Yeah. And this should be distinguished from intersexuality, which Molly and I have talked about before, which has to do with your biological sex, when the your, your physical makeup doesn't distinguish you as male or female. Right. That's a separate issue. Right. Now, I think that a lot of people, when they think about androgyny, they think about a physical appearance of androgyny, which is why it's so important to separate it from sexuality. Because think of some of our pop stars today. We've got Adam Lambert. We've got Lady Gaga. In uh, earlier times, we had people like David Bowie. In fact, I even read one argument that Michael Jackson was one of the first androgynous superstars because you really didn't know where he, where he stood. So all of those performers really have physical markers that you can tell that they're playing with gender. Mm -hmm. But if we're going to talk about the actual like blending of female, male and and personality, we'll need to talk about psychological androgyny. Right. Now, when we talk about psychological androgyny, we would be remiss to not mention a pretty famous researcher named Sandra Bem. And in 1971, she developed something called the BEM Sex Role Inventory because she basically wanted to create some kind of scale for measuring androgyny. And it's basically the set of traits that are considered stereotypically masculine, feminine, and then gender neutral. And depending on how a person identifies with each of these traits, uh, determines where they fall on this sex role inventory scale. Right. And it was really interesting to me to read a little bit about why she developed this. It came out of of sort of the feminist movement and she had feminist convictions. And she writes about how women were afraid to express anger, Mm -hmm. assert themselves, essentially without adopting some of these stereotypically masculine traits, feminism would go nowhere. So let me read off a few of these um, traits on the scale. Masculine items include self-reliant, defends own beliefs, independent, athletic, assertive, Strong personality, forceful, analytical, uh, willing to take risks, makes decisions easily, self-sufficient, dominant, aggressive, acts as a leader, competitive, ambitious. I mean, I, I describe myself as a few of those things. Sure. I would like to be a few of those things. <laughs> exactly. That's what she was saying is as a feminist, you would never be able to move forward 
mm-hmm. and be truly equal until you did some of those things. Now, if you're feminine, the feminine items on the scale are yielding, cheerful, shy, affectionate, flatterable, loyal, sympathetic, sensitive to needs of others, understanding, compassionate, eager to soothe who hurt feelings, soft-spoken, warm, gullible, childlike, does not use harsh language, loves children, gentle. Molly, I think I might want to identify with that first list you just called. I know, out. and that's that's sort of going to be the the trick of the day is to figure out what this scale really means. Yeah, because essentially, people who identified with things from both lists, as well as this list of neutral things, um, if they if they identified strongly enough, most of the time with things from both lists, can them consider that person androgynous, meaning they encapsulated both male and female traits, and all sorts of statements were made about how androgynous people were probably set up to live the best life possible because they could take on any job because they had both that nurturing side and, uh, you know, the determination to get things done and they probably have better relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been, uh, studies about whether androgynous people are more creative yeah. because they can be expressive, but also imaginative. Well, and Bim was trying to make a point, I think, when she developed this sexual inventory because she said, and this is a quote from her, I took for myself the feminist goal of trying to gather the relevant data of trying to demonstrate empirically that traditional sex roles do not restrict behavior in important human ways. And so it seems like it was almost, uh, you know, a way to... I guess, kind of prove that, you know, you don't need to identify as solely masculine or feminine. And especially because this ties in so much with second wave feminism, like you mentioned, there is a lot of related research that came out of this as well. Well, I think it's one of the most cited methodologies for determining where Mm -hmm. someone falls on a gender spectrum, maybe of all time. Yeah. I mean, I don't know much about the gender spectrums, but I'm going to go ahead and make a statement as bold as that. It definitely seemed like from our research, it has been used uh, to the point that it surprises BEM Mm -hmm. how much it's been used. Um, And because it has probably been so widely used, it's also come under a lot of criticism as well, questioning whether or not it's really testing androgyny and whether or not we it's really just reinforcing normative stereotypes of what it means to be male, female, androgynous. And I think that you could probably tell from some of my my intonations, Kristen, that I wasn't wasn't thrilled with some of the feminine ideal traits. I mean, I would like to be sensitive to the needs of others, but I don't really want to be described as gullible necessarily. Yeah. I don't think that females have some sort of um domain on not using harsh language right because kristen's got a mouth like a sailor hey now well that's also one reason why some researchers have tried to refer to these masculine feminine traits instead of going back to masculinity femininity aligning masculine terms with instrumentality and more feminine terms with expressiveness and some have even wanted to use agenic and communal to distinguish between them but i still have a problem with dividing these terms up anyway because you're never going to be able to fully divorce instrumentality and expressiveness for masculinity and femininity which is always going to lead you back to gender stereotypes two sides of the same coin and keeping us yeah we're still checking off a certain set of characteristics that supposedly defines who we are and the type of person we are and how we relate to other people so with all this research about androgyny it kind of makes me wonder whether or not it's even 
that progressive. So despite the fact that Bem wants to make this sort of a feminist rallying point, you know, as soon as she puts it out, a scholar named Daniel Harris comes out and says that she is, you know, undermining feminists in this way because it's still allowing men to co-opt good traits, whereas, you know, the women will still be out of sync, essentially, if they adopt the masculine traits. Right. They're still having to disown parts of themselves. And he even goes far as to describe androgyny as a sexist myth, Mm -hmm. because kind of like what I mentioned before, like in his eyes, it still all came back to this sexual polarization that didn't benefit women in the long run. But the interesting thing is, if you look at studies since then that evaluate people who have these collections of what we would consider to be psychologically androgynous traits, the benefit does seem to fall more to the women than the men. It seems more socially advantageous for a woman to exhibit more androgynous traits, i.e. adopt more masculine traits Mm -hmm. than for the men out there. For instance, there was a pretty extensive article in Psychology Today about the concept of androgyny, and it points out that um, psychological masculinity has always been correlated positively with creativity in both men and women, but psychological femininity had negative associations in creativity for both men and women. So then it kind of brings up the point, too, if we keep coming back to these masculine and feminine terms, you know, it seems like the the masculine ones, by and large, are going to be favored no matter what mm-hmm. um, over feminine ones. Because if you just think about women in the workplace, kind of the most successful ones kind of have to adopt a little bit more of a masculine persona. Whereas uh, the typical man was to adopt a typical female characteristics, you know, he, would, he might not benefit from it. So essentially, despite the fact that it all comes down to psychological traits, it's really it's not helpful, you know. Is that what we're saying with this? I think that that might be an argument that we are putting out there. Yeah. You know, I don't know that we can necessarily, you know, we aren't the, we aren't the experts, but from reading it, it doesn't seem like it's that helpful. So I think what's difficult to square with is that when you read about the spectrum and how it's used, androgyny is ideal. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it's the best way you could make your way through a a war, especially a male dominated world. Just by becoming more masculine. Well, especially, well, if you look at, if you take up the positive masculine right. traits. Because they, we did re- come across one article where, uh, you could definitely be negatively androgynous mm-hmm. if you take, what's a, what's an awful male trait? Uh, aggression. Aggression. If you take aggression and then like, gullibility. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you could definitely be negatively androgynous. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it seems if you take the best of both worlds, then that's just the way to be, yeah. which does support Nori's case that, you know, you would you would have advantages in the world that you wouldn't have if you were just male or female. Mm-hmm. But I think the word androgyny has become so associated with physical markers that it's very difficult to tell someone that androgyny is an ideal. If you can accept that, if you can get away from, you know, as we talked about, this sexist myth that you should be even thinking about what a feminine or a masculine mm-hmm. trait is in the first place. But because physical gender is such a marker to us, um, then androgyny, I think, can start to become very troublesome to society. So some people in society who yeah. can't handle the fact that there might not be a gender marker for every person. Mm-hmm. And I also question kind of the, the importance, I guess, of 
all these androgynous, you know, characteristics, psychological characteristics, because it seems like the thing that people are more curious about is sexuality more than whether or not someone is childlike or, you know, gullible or aggressive Mm -hmm. or whatever. You know, when you see um, like, okay, for instance, when Adam Lambert was on American Idol, Mm -hmm. Everyone's question wasn't whether what, what Adam Lambert was like, what his personality was like off stage. It was who he went home with at night. Right. You know, does he like boys or girls or both? Or how he dressed. Yeah. So that because it's become so blurred, I think androgyny is a really loaded term that's not very useful anymore, despite the fact that in the world of psychology, it did have sort of this ideal status. Mm-hmm. But physically, um, I found this one study from New Scientist that I thought was pretty fascinating where um, some researchers from the University of Connecticut made all these computer avatars. Um, and some were very gendered. Some were just like ketchup bottles with faces on it. And then some were sexually androgynous in, in the physical appearance. And the people who used, who interacted with the avatars were asked to rate how trustworthy the people using the avatars were. And by and large, the ketchup bottle was not very, not very trustworthy, <laughs> by the way, to never trust a bottle of ketchup. Um, but androgynous avatars were far less trusted in the internet world than the gendered avatars. Mm-hmm. So I think that that speaks to the fact that when a lot of people can't have that physical marker that gives them the reassurance that this is a man or this is a woman. And I think that's what makes, you know, a lot of people uncomfortable with someone like Lady Gaga. But I think it also is part of what makes them alluring. And alluring as Sexually long- exciting. Cause you're True. not sure. There is a little bit of that, you know, forbidden territory. Don't know what you don't know what's going on necessarily. Exactly. But for some people, more conservative people, I would think that would be a lot more troublesome. And, you know, the, the researchers basically said, if you want to be trusted on the internet and you're not Lady Gaga, who's got a platform and, you know, sort of, you know, acceptance just because she's famous. If you're just someone in the world, then it's almost like you do have to identify with a gender. And that's what people like Nori are trying to combat. Mm hmm. So we've told you guys what we think. Uh, now we want to hear from you. Do you think that Nori's androgyny is going to possibly become the new model? Do you think that we need to reinforce, you know, our physical markers for gender, social markers for gender? Do you think that it matters at all? Is androgyny the ideal? Is androgyny the ideal? Uh, let us know. Momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. Send us an email and you'll probably get a response. All right. First email today is from Caroline, who wrote about our ballet and racism podcast. And she writes, I wonder if I'll be the only one to write in to say that she grew up ignorant of the racism issue in ballet through the Babysitter's Club books. I was a big fan of Jesse, the 11-year-old ballet-obsessed Babysitter's Club member, who was often pointed out as one of the only people of color at Stony Brook Middle School. But I can't recall any stories that dealt with race with regards to her dance performances. Maybe that's because she was 11 and not an adult ballerina. But now I'm left feeling like Anna Martin, or rather her army of ghostwriters, missed an opportunity for yet another very special episode book. All right, well, I've got another email here about the exact same podcast on ballet. And this comes from Erin. She said, I want to let you know it's not just ballet that has racial discrimination issues. Recently, I did a performance with an Indian dance school. 
here in America. I was shocked to see the makeup situation backstage. Many of the darker-skinned Indian girls were being given a lighter-skinned look using base. Honestly, many of these girls were given skin tones that were almost white. I was dismayed at the behavior, and many of the girls were beautiful as they were, were naturally, and felt like we were giving the wrong idea to these very impressionable teenagers. I just wanted to let you know that whiteness isn't only sought after for ballet or from Americans. And one more quick one from Lara, who points out that it's not just ballet either. She writes, I figure skate, and there seems to be the same problem with diversity on the ice. I only know of one or two black figure skaters at my rink, and the rest are mostly white or Asian. Even if you look at famous skaters, few are black or Latina. I don't know if this is because of discrimination, lack of interest, cost, or what, but I started thinking about it as I listened to your podcast. It would be great if there were a bit more diversity in these sports. Girls would have positive role models encouraging them to get active and have fun. So there you have it. And again, if you want to send us an email, it's momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And during the week, you should head over to our blog. It's called How To Stuff. And if you would like to learn about any topic under the sun, you can go and visit howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Want more How Stuff Works? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?